The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 191 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Benello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize all the pins expressed in the show of my own, not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence or privilege to us result my current employment. I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past United States government. Another thing I say during the show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone, you can go online on the Cybersecurity Hub and get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to provide the latest introduced thought leadership and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Well, last week, we had the Chief Information Officer of Sienna, Craig Williams, join me on episode 190 of TF7 Radio. We discussed how taking risks in his career had paid off and the importance of focusing on the gift in your interactions. Craig also discussed how he builds organizations around what he describes, PhDs, passion, heart, and drive, and how he challenges his leaders to think big. We ended the show with Craig giving his CIO and his CISO perspective on the future of the Chief Information Security Officer role and how CIOs and CISOs should be interacting. All this and much, much more in episode 190 of Task Force 7 Radio. If you missed it last week's folks, don't sweat it. We're on at least 11 different playback mediums. You can find us everywhere, folks. That's episode 190, Risk Taking Pays Off, on last week's episode of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, we got another great guest for you tonight. We got Chris Cleary on the show tonight. Can't wait. I just saw him last week, and it was, uh, was like, you got to come on the show right away. So Chris Cleary is the Chief Principal Cyber Advisor for the Department of the Navy. He is responsible for advising the Secretary of the Navy, Chief of Naval Operations, and Commandant of the Marine Corps, and implementing the Department of Defense cyber strategy within the Department of the Navy. Prior to being appointed as the PCA, he was the Chief Information Security Officer and Director of the CIO Cybersecurity Directorate for the Department of the Navy. Before returning to his roots in the Navy, Chris was working in the commercial sector as Vice President of Business Development and Strategy for Lido Cyber and Sigint Solutions Operation. Chris's other commercial experience includes Director of Business Development at Tenable, Client Partner of Verizon Enterprise Solutions, Director of Cyber Intelligence at L3 Communications, President of Versex Government Services, and Senior Manager of Intelligence Programs at Sparta. Chris is a retired Naval Reserve officer who served 16 of 24 years on active duty in a variety of leadership roles, supporting several commands, including U.S. Cyber Command, National Security Agency, Office of Naval Intelligence, National Reconnaissance Office, and Joint Special Operations Command. Prior to receiving his commission, Chris spent four years as an F-A-18 Hornet avionics technician serving with the Desert Gladiators. Chris has deployed four times, twice supporting combat missions in Iraq. He's a certified information security systems professional, PMP. He's also been a lecturer at the U.S. Naval, United States Naval Academy, Federal Aviation Administration, Naval Postgraduate School, DEFCON Security Conference, and the National Defense University. Chris graduated from the United States Naval Academy in 1996. He has a Master of Arts in National Security and Strategic Studies from the Naval War College. It's my pleasure to introduce Principal Cyber Advisor of the Department of the Navy, Mr. Chris Cleary. Chris, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio, buddy. Andy, this is, uh, I really can't tell you how happy I am to be here. Uh, the fact that, you know, uh, 
circles continue to run into each other. And from our time at Verizon to sort of bounce into each other at that dinner the other night, uh, I thought was really uh, <laughs> fortuitous. Um, uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. I loved it. It was great. I stood up to introduce myself at dinner. I look over and there you were. I'm like, oh, same. I got to connect with Chris again. It's been way too long. It has. Well, man, you've been doing some really cool stuff. I mean, I know you were over at Tenable. You made the shift back to the government to serve again. Congratulations on making that shift. And I appreciate you. your service to the country. Uh, you know, one of the things that we were talking about the other night, which I'd love to get kind of pick the conversation back up, you know, is, is the public-private partnership, you know, and we you know, we've been talking about this now for, for quite some time, right? I mean, obviously with the anniversary of 9-11 coming up, it's kind of like the real yeah. big conversation around why all that started, um, you know, and you, you know, debate the, 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 the information sharing failures and gaps, et cetera. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're still having this conversation and I like to think some things have gotten better, but from, from your view, man, and where you sit now, kind of how, how, have, how are things going in that space? So, you know, it's funny, and the mentioning, I, I'm probably, well, I'm definitely repeating myself to you, whether the rest of the world has heard me say this or not. You, you've heard, probably heard some version of this in the past. Uh, you know, the public-private partnership is, is a wonderful thing, um, but I don't think people always understand sort of what lies beneath this construct of a public-private partnership. Now, I'm kind of cynical and, I, and I'm going to say I'm not wearing my Navy hat right this minute. I'm going to talk sort of from the defense contracting world because, you know, you and I crossed paths at Verizon when we were there together. Um, I've worked for a bunch of defense contractors. I've worked for, you know, a tech startup that went that failed miserably. Uh, I worked for one that went public when I was a tenable, you know, time in the military, uh, in uniform, active duty, reservist, government. So I think I've, I'm not saying I'm an expert in this by any stretch of the imagination. I just think I've had the opportunity to observe this from yeah, just about every- been a great vantage point for sure. Yeah. I mean, I've been able to observe this from just about every angle sitting in the cheap seats, kind of watching this. Well, you know, cynically, the public private partnership is all about, you know, what the other party is going to get out of this, right? So I think when cynically, when the defense contractors or the commercial sector look at public-private partnership, it's sort of like, well, what, what can I get from the government, right? What, what contract can I get them to sign with me? How can, I, how can I profit from this? And I think when the government looks at the same argument, it's sort of like, well, what can I get from industry for free? Um, now, that might have been circa 10 years ago. I do think we're in a better spot where we are now uh, with, with the sharing of information, you know, I, I have my, my own issues with the CMMC construct and, and putting more onus of security back on the, on the commercial sector, albeit there are things that the commercial sector could be doing to be better uh, working with the government, et cetera. But, but this public-private partnership thing, I don't think that we've, we've, we've hammered it out enough to sort of understand what each side wants out of this. We talk about information sharing, and at the surface, that's great, right? We all want sort of transparent, very quick information sharing. But I think the commercial world would say, look, the information that we derive from the things that we do does not happen free. You know, it's not at no cost to us. We have organizations, we pay employees, we have, you know, whatever benefits that we pay for when it comes to data that they ingest or whatever. You know, and the government would say, oh, well, well, on the flip side, you know, what we do and how we collect information through the intelligence community through, through you know, means and, and techniques and tactics and things that are sensitive, you know, then you, then you bounce into those two problems. You know, the government can't share because it's classified and the commercial sector has issues because it costs them something to do this and they're looking to be made whole. Uh, I don't think anybody acknowledges that on the surface, but deep, deep, deep down, 
you know, in the, you know, so I'm trying to think of one of those movie lines of the places you don't like to talk about at dinner parties or some quote from a movie there someplace, <laughs> you know, we, it's that deep, deep, deep thing that we don't acknowledge openly to, to, to each side of the, of the equation. Yeah. And, it, and, and do you think we, could, we just want to use it as an excuse? Like, well, the government, like, let's say I'm in the private sector and I had a breach and, you know, I almost want to be able to say, like, I, not me personally, but like, I think people in the private sector want, want to be able to say, this actor was so advanced and there's no way I could have ever protected myself against them. The government yeah. never have given me anything to be able to protect myself. So uh, I'm not the government and I could never have protected myself because I'm not a government because I'm fighting a government in this issue. Cool. So like, where do we sit in, in that part of, we, we kind of, you know, tip the scale too far in the sense that, yeah, we want to share information, but are the, the cyber actors at the nation state level you know, have companies started to just give in to the fact that they are never going to de- defend against that? I don't think giving in, but I would flip just, just a, I, I, I change what you said just a little bit. And I have kind of this crazy analogy that I use for this. And I use, there's this, there was an NSTAB national science, you were uh, the, the NSTAC, that's it. The NSTAC, yep. Thank you. The NSTAC did a paper years ago that I don't think ever actually made it out. So this is not original thought by Chris Cleary. This is something that I had the opportunity to read when it was in draft. I don't think it ever really got anywhere. And I think what the, what the crux of this paper was about, sort of this idea of what, what should companies be expected to withstand? And I'll, and I'll use a fire as an analogy to make my point. Um, because there's some things that you would expect certain companies un- in the crosshairs of certain ar- adversaries, regardless of how whatever technology they have access to or training of their people, there's some things that you're just never going to withstand a nation state attack. So I use this fire department analogy as an example. You know, you and I are two ambulatory, bipedal, you know, humanoids with opposable thumbs. Um, that are both in our, well, I just turned 50. I think you're in your late 40s, early 50s. You know, to say that, you know, if, if we're cooking at our kitchen and there's a small grease fire and we have access to a fire extinguisher, that's something we should be expected to be able to do. I might not expect somebody, a geriatric individual or a young child, but there's some, uh, you know, everybody between the ages of 16 and 86 should be able to respond to this as an example. But if our roof was on fire, you know, it got hit by lightning and our roof is on fire. That's where we quickly run beyond the level of our ability to, to, to react to these things. Even though you and I might have just won the lottery and I had the ability to buy a fire engine and put it in my driveway, it doesn't necessarily mean that I really know how to use that the same way a trained fire department, you know, somebody whose organization does nothing but trains people and equips them in a way to respond to really bad things. You know, that fire department doesn't show up, you know, to put out the little grease fire, although you probably have called 911 and maybe you've responded to it at this point. But there comes this, this point that there's things that we just don't expect people to, to be able to do on their own. And I think that has to be sort of mapped over to companies. Yes, there's good hygiene. You should train your workforce to a certain level. I would expect you to have certain products and services. You know, you should be doing the basics, right? You should be doing the, just the, the, the hygiene that we would expect anybody capable of. But if you find yourselves in the crosshairs of a sophisticated nation state adversary, I don't know if I would ever expect you to withstand that over time. Like, um, you know, the, 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 the guys at the, 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 the colonial pipeline and the solar winds, I'm sure they have very well-trained, sophisticated security organizations. 
But even those guys are going to reach their limit of what they're actually able to go do. And I think we fail to realize that. We just say, if I put all these requirements on you, or if I give you access to all this different kinds of security technology, you should be able to put it together in such a way to withstand those attacks. And I, I think that's fundamentally a flawed way of thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, it's extremely good analogy, right? I think, you know, I'm being a little overdramatic about the way I phrase the question, right? But I think, because I want to get your, your, your perspective. Yeah, totally. But, but I think it's it's an interesting conversation to have because you start to get into now when you've referenced it, right, CMMC. And, you know, everyone's, you know, you've got, so look, you've got the EO now out of the new Biden, of the Biden mm-hmm. administration. CMMC MMC is is there. You've got... Uh, great new cyber leadership between, you know, you, Rob, Joyce, you know, Jen Westerly, right? You got all, so like we got all this new leadership in place. So things are moving in the right direction. The question will be, can we move fast enough, right? Can CMMC actually do something in the supply chain security space to help what the government consumes <laughs> to be safe in a time in a timely manner compared to the the pace at which the adversaries are moving or competitors are moving, whichever you want to describe it. Well, I think you put the you put the the, the best little spin on this, and you said like within a timely manner. Like, right? what is that time frame to which we have to be prepared? You know, five minutes before we were talking, you know, before you started hitting record, we were talking about football, right? Well, the football schedule, people know when the preseason is, they know when the actual games are, you know, the draft. You know, they know when that first game's going down. They know when that timeline is, when that team has to be ready to perform. Even if it's just in the preseason, hey, we're going to throw our new players on the field and see how they do them. But they know that game one, right? When the season starts, it's on the calendar, you map towards it. So the question is, we're struggling with what that time frame is, right? When do we need to be prepared? Well, somebody could say we need to be prepared all the time. Well, okay, if that's the, if that's the, the, the metric we're going to use. You know, CMMC is a good thing. Um, Katie Arrington, who, who she's taken some lumps over this. You know, I fundamentally agree conceptually with what CMMC was designed to go off and go do. There, there's a lot of really good principles, good strong, oops, excuse me, a lot of good principles behind it. Um, the question is, it does impose cost onto those that are willing to deploy it. And I think when it, the only thing Katie, I think, misstepped in the beginning is when she said, oh, it wouldn't cost a lot of money for a company to go and employ these CMMC best practices. Well, we all know that's not true, right? We all know there's significant cost associated with rolling this out. Um, as the, you know, the question is, well, should you roll it out, right? I believe you should, or you should, everybody should be doing the best uh, efforts they can to ensure that they're putting out a good and secure product and or service. Um, the question is, the environment changes so quickly, there's always something new that you're going to have to do that's going to yet impart more and more costs onto your product and service. And the government just has to understand that it's just going to, you know, import more and more costs onto us as consumers of those products or services. Yeah. Now, as long as we're cognizant of that and, and realizing what we're asking people to do is not easy, it does incur cost, it does incur investment, and we are the customers of that. And we know we're, we're, know these things may ultimately end up being more expensive. And as long as we acknowledge that and, and we fully embrace it, I think we can move forward. Because what I will say, and, and you know, not to ramble on too much longer is, you know, there, you know, there's commercial shipping and there's 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 warships, and fundamentally they share a lot of the similar characteristics with each other. They have engineering plants. You can you know can sleep on them. They can navigate. They can they can go through open water, but warships share a unique uh, uh, requirement, which is somebody may actively try and put that warship at the bottom of the ocean, um, which means that the the additional 
survivability built into it, defensive weapon systems, the additional manning that it takes to do damage control on a ship makes that ship more expensive because you're, you're putting it in harm's way. And if it has to be engaged by an adversary and all those things have to come into action to keep that ship you know, above the waterline, well, it costs more. Um, and I think we have to think about our information systems in the same way. If we really think these systems are going to be engaged continuously by our adversaries, that very nature means they're taking on a relationship looking more like a warship, which means it's going to be more expensive to maintain and secure that environment. It's a really great analogy. I got so many questions for that. Man. I got so many things I want to dive in on there. We're going to take a quick break and I'm going to hit you back on that because I got... I got I, I got some for you. I Roger can't wait that. to get into this on the next segment. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram and searching at TF7 Radio. And you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite social media platform. For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf 7 that's the number seven, folks, radio.com. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Principal Cyber Advisor of the Department of the Navy, Chris Cleary. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. Business email compromise is the largest cybersecurity threat, making up 44% of all cybercrime losses. BEC attacks are targeted, socially engineered, text-based emails that appear to come from someone you know. Because they don't have attachments, links, or traditional indicators of compromise, they slip through email security defenses. In order to stop them, you need a solution that understands the good in order to stop the bad. Abnormal Security uses a unique behavioral data science and API-based approach to baseline good behavior and identify bad behavior. Because we understand the normal to stop the abnormal, we stop BEC account takeovers and more. You can use Abnormal with Office 365 or Google to protect your employees and organization from attacks that can cause financial and reputational damage. It's time for a new solution to email security. Experience the abnormal. Learn more now at abnormalsecurity.com slash TF7. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Synet, S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. 
By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests and new happenings at the voice America talk radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with the Principal Cyber Advisor of the Department of the Navy, Chris Cleary. Well, Chris, I was loving your analogy at the end of the last segment around the warship compared to the regular cruise ship. And it really got me thinking immediately about how the cyber war we're fighting on and the battle space of that is similar to the warship in the sense that all of our adversaries own that infrastructure, just like the warship is a government-owned you know, asset. However, our infrastructure is like a cruise ship because it's owned by the private sector, right? The telco infrastructure yeah. being fought on is, is that cruise ship. So how does a warship, right, fight or the cruise ship fight a warship? And then how do we leverage the telco or our infrastructure in a way, in our current model when our adversaries or our competitors are leveraging it when they own it? Like, I'd love to get how you're thinking through that. Ugh, this is a, this is a tough one, actually. And this is kind of going back to our time at Verizon. It when is. We were, when we were there together, right? And uh, you know, so the funny thing was, is I was I was a reservist still drilling with U.S. Cybercom when when you and I were at Verizon together. Um, and this is one I used to think about a lot because you know we used to make the joke. It, it's not that the Chinese and the U.S. agree to pull some Cat Five, you know, between their two organizations, and they're going to you know have a cyber war. Uh, you know, let's let's create our own little network, and you know the the infrastructure used to to conduct that. I'll use war. I'm not trying. Well, I don't know. We can you can use we can choose words. Um, you know, to have that conflict on. Well, that's not Cat Five that we pulled agreed to pull between each other. That's Verizon, AT and T, British Telecom. You know, level three. That's that's the infrastructure that the commercial world has really gone off and created. Um, that to one degree or another leases out to, you know, all their customers, whether, you know, however they do that, that they conduct, well, we'll call it commerce. We know it's tipped into information uh, operations, whether it be intelligence collection or now we're moving to this new warfighting domain. Um, that's an interesting thing. And, and, I, and I don't know how to answer the question as much as 
do all those organizations that provide this infrastructure and have relationships with with organizations that are pitted against one another? And I'll just maybe for this, you know, because it's not a ro- it's not rocket science or a secret to think that you know that you know the, the the U.S. considers China one of its near peer adversaries. Well, we're connected through a lot of different commercial infrastructure that neither one of us technically own, but that commercial infrastructure considers both of us customers. So now you begin to further complicate this matter. Um, and, then, and then once we start using that infrastructure to deliver, let's say, warfighting capability over, well, that infrastructure immediately now becomes legitimate military target. So I use the, you know, we always talk about if you, so there's a great book, the Talon Manual, for those of people who did cyber stuff might, may or may not be familiar with it, but a bunch of lawyers took, you know, the laws are on conflict, the rules of engagement, the demon convention. They said, if we had to overlay cyber on all of this, what would it look like? And there was this thing called the Talon Manual. That was the, the, the output of that. Well, we'd use an example of, let's say, something like a bridge. And they'd say a bridge that we're connecting to organizations that we're doing commerce on, it is not necessarily a legitimate military target. But the second a tank rolls over that bridge, well, now it is. And it could be engaged to include kinetically engaged, you know, brought to the you know, brought to the ground through through kinetic activity to ensure tanks will not pass over this bridge. Well, how do we look through commercial infrastructure in the same lens? Um, and we know that there's lots and lots and lots of commercial infrastructure that is used in one degree or another as uh, supply chains for warfighting capability or directly associated with warfighting capability. I guess the telecoms would be, you know, would be directly in that in that shot group, and you know, I, and I kind of make the joke that says, uh, you know, because that is the case, you could see it going down one or two paths. The telecoms could all get together and say, "Look, we're not we're not going to get involved because you're both our customers. So, but as long as you don't break us in the process, but the minute you break our stuff, we're cutting everybody off. I don't know. Maybe that's that's a way for, let's say, the telecoms in particular to look at the problem. But then you start getting into the things that aren't necessarily uh, associated with both organizations. You know, now you get into critical infrastructure inside the United States specifically. Uh, you know, I live in Baltimore, um, Baltimore Gas and Electric. Baltimore Gas and Electric provides a considerable amount of power to the National Security Agency. That's not a secret. Is So is Baltimore National Electric, by that very nature, a legitimate military target because it provides power to one of the largest intelligence collection platforms on the planet. Has Baltimore Gas and Electric come to that conclusion and are taking actions to acknowledge that? I don't know. Uh, but it's one of those things that I think we need to think through. So, so yeah, man. So then like take, take the things like CMMC, which would then apply to those service providers to the government. And, you know, <laughs> is that, you know, enough? Or, you know, are, you know is the government going to be able to assess you know, the amount of resources that a service provider is going to apply as it relates to CMMC and who's going to enforce any of that? I, I, I don't, that's a, Andy, that's a great question. And um, I, I, I wish I had a, a better answer. I think what I would say is um, things like the CMMC, I would equate to things like the NIST framework, Right. And the reason I bring the NIST framework up is I go back to like basic engineering principles as an example. And, and when we were building buildings, you know, hundreds of years ago that fell over in a stiff wind or, or a, a low earthquake or just spontaneously caught on fire, 
we eventually came up with building standards, right? Engineering standards that ensured that, you know, things just didn't arbitrarily catch on fire or arbitrarily blew over in, you know, stiff wind or, you know, understood load bearing to such a degree that, you know, they knew that they just weren't going to collapse in on their own weight. And I kind of equate those to a lot of the NIST frameworks, you know, the, the best practices that would ensure that things are not arbitrarily left wide open or, or susceptible to an adversary action. But I say all that to say this, um, and there was another gentleman, I, I, oh, I'm forgetting his name. We were at Verizon with him together. Um, and it, he used to say, uh, you know, Mother Nature is not a maneuvering adversary. And I loved it that he said that, you know, the idea was, again, working at a telecom, you know, if you had a hurricane that was hitting the mid-Atlantic and, and a bunch of resources went to reconstitute, you know, communications in the mid-Atlantic, as soon as those got there, you know, Mother Nature didn't start dropping tornadoes in, in the Tornado Valley because, you know, resources were pulled from that area. But a sophisticated adversary could do those things. If they brought down, you know, if they engaged things in a certain sector and you delivered resources to there, knowing that those things weren't able to respond in another area, a sophisticated adversary could then engage that other adversary, could gauge that other area. Um, so what I'm getting at is, is all the best engineering principles in the world have not prevented buildings from having JDAMs dropped into them. You know, you could build a building to all the proper you know, engineering characteristics. I mean, I know we're coming up on the, on the 20th anniversary of September 11th and with things that are going on in Afghanistan, this might not be the best time to make this analogy, but you know, the World Trade Center stood up for a long, long time. It wasn't until an airplane was introduced to their environment that they all of a sudden, that they collapsed. Um, so, so engineering principles were sound. Those buildings were going to stand and had it not been for September 11th, they would probably still be there. You hit them with an airplane, all, think, all bets are off. So what I'm getting at is the best practices of CMMC could be in place, but sophisticated adversaries are still going to come up with, with means and methods to get around those things. Exactly. It'll, it should make it harder for them. It should have them to, they should expend more cost to do that. But, you know, it's not to say that if there's something there that they want, they're not going to figure out how a way to go get it. Yeah. And, we, you know, from the private sector, you know, security space, we you know constantly are talking about, well, if we're going to lose, right, if we're going to get beat, it better be from an adversary who's using their most sophisticated, yeah. most expensive tools. And they really wanted to come after us and had to expend an exorbitant amount of, round of energy and resources to, to go f- fulfill that mission, right? We can't lose to uh, something really stupid and simple that we should have prevented. Sure. Right? So I think that kind of fits. So, you know, Chris, I'd love to get your take too. on like, just your, you know, your, where you're sitting right now in the government, now you're back in service. Like what, what's kind of keeping you up at night these days? So, all right. You, another softball you threw me, but I appreciate that. Um, so, you know, look, when we were talking after the dinner, um, the thing that, the thing that I'm most fascinated with right now is this idea of um, cyber is a war fighting domain. Now, I can, he- I can see people rolling their eyes right now, even though that I've just said that, right? Depending on who, within the sound of my voice, um, there are people that are still, that would still challenge the fact that cyber or information warfare or information operations is, is in itself warfare. And I go back to my basic Clausewitz, which says, you know, Clausewitz would say, you know, war is simply getting your adversary to succumb to your will. However, I choose to do that. But of course, you go back to his day and age, a lot of it was based on conflict, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you to succumb to my will because I'm going to have a larger army. I'm going to invade your territories. I'm going to take your resources. I, I get all that. 
But we're moving into kind of this new means and methods of warfare where warfare has gone beyond simply the kinetic into the cognitive, right? I, all I got to do is, so, you know, our population, our, 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 our you know, the, the, the center of the U.S. is that, that warm, goo, gooey center is our people. And as long as, I, if I can affect the way your people think, ultimately I affect the way that your, your country is going to respond to certain things. So, I, so what scares me is, is some of our adversaries have recognized that. They're beginning to use what you and I might call information operations, cyber warfare, non-kinetic, whatever you want to call it. They're just beginning to practice a new means and methods of warfare. And I really do believe that, that the kind of activity that we're seeing is warfare. We don't recognize it that way necessarily because it's not kinetic, right? They haven't blown something up. They haven't killed anybody because that's traditionally how we have defined warfare is there's some kinetic action that has to take place. So what scares me is with the lack of that kinetic action, we're, we're failing to recognize the kind of things that our adversaries are due to shape us to get us to succumb to their will. Um, and, and that's the thing that I'm most kind of fascinated with right and, now. And, and do you think, you know, part of that strategy is for them to now view us and, and try to get us to view them as competitors? Well, yeah. Right. So, um, uh, you know, I, I make the joke, uh, yeah, I went to the Naval Academy, but I failed calculus. So I was, I was forced into being a history major. Um, <laughs> Right, so it was the way that I graduated the Naval Academy was trying to gut my way through a history uh, curriculum. Well, I guess it, you know, I like to read, right? So I read a lot, right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, strangely, for a guy who's who's a Uber, you know, who's the Uber cyber guy, I'm probably not as technical as I should be. So a lot of these conclusions I come up with are based in, you know, looking at it history, uh, right, wrong, or indifferent. And one of the observations I'm coming to now is there's a, there, one of my mentors, uh, Vice Admiral White, I'll just throw his name out there. He may or may not be happy with that, but I'll, I'll say it. Uh, I'm a big fan of Vice Admiral White, and he has shaped a lot of my thinking moving forward. And he, he turned me onto this book called Execute Against Japan. And a very quick synopsis of this was, you know, this idea of unrestricted submarine warfare. And this was something that we were against as a nation state for a long, long time. You know, we Post-World War I, we, we basically said, uh, you know, we didn't like the way the Germans were doing unrestricted submarine warfare in the Atlantic, the sinking the Lusitania, there's a few other things. And for several decades after the end of World War I, we tried to outlaw the submarine. We were trying to get rid of the submarine as a legitimate means and methods of warfare. But what we found was, not only did we not do that, but at the beginning of World War II, we issued an order that said execute against Japan, which for all practical purposes was the conducting of unrestricted submarine warfare on the Japanese, which is something that we were vehemently against going into the war. Why do I say all that? I say all that is to say that, that we still seem to be a, a nation state that wants to engage our adversaries on what we would call our traditional battlefields. But they have coined this idea, particularly the, Jap particularly the Chinese, of this idea of unrestricted warfare. And the first rule of unrestricted warfare, there are no rules. You can read it in a book titled Unrestricted Warfare, written by two Chinese colonels back in 1999. They wrote it based on some observations they watched during the first Gulf War. Um, and, and these two Chinese colonels sort of mapped what you could basically call it the roadmap for what the Chinese are doing us today. They are in an unrestricted warfare. And it doesn't mean some people misinterpret unrestricted with total war, right? 
total war was what Clausewitz and Mahan said, you know, it's the defeating our adversaries. It's a crushing them on the battlefield. Unrestricted warfare is not that. It's not total war. It's unrestricted. It's, it's unrestricted in the means and methods of the ways I'm going to try and shape my adversaries thinking about how they want to engage with me in the future. And that's why I'm going and they've opened up this whole new domain of cyber or non-kinetic or information operations that they're really, really good at. Um, and we need to pick up on that. And, and the, now the real debate is, uh, and I'm not speaking as the principal cyber advisor of the Department of the Navy for my next two sentences, um, the real challenge is, are we going to recognize it? And are we going to think about how we want to engage them similarly to the debates we had between World War I and World War II through this construct of unrestricted submarine warfare? Are we going to think through the means and methods of warfare and adopt some of the practices that our adversaries have adopted? Now, as unpleasant or as unpalatable as we may think those are, and that's kind of probably where I write this minute, it doesn't mean we don't think through those means and methods and, and are they things that we would adopt if we were really forced into doing it? Yeah, Matt. Well, look, I, I really appreciate your candor here. That's a great perspective. Look, all right, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors. Don't go away, folks. We're right back with more from Principal Cyber Advisor of the Department of the Navy, Chris Cleary. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with Principal Cyber Advisor of the Department of the Navy, Chris Cleary. Chris, so you've been on both sides, you know, of the of the coin here between you know serving in the private sector and also serving, um, you know, in the in the government. And I really, for when I get people like you on the show that have that perspective, I, I love trying to get your your views on and advice for folks who um, are looking to make the transition out of the government. And and also when you you know after that, I'd love to get your take on your advice for folks that want to serve and go into the government and bring their private sector skills in? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's funny. Um, that's a great question because I, I came to this epiphany four or five years ago and I was working at Tenable and uh, I was at Tenable and we did this it, it, for those of you in the industry are familiar with the ACAS program. It was the way we do vulnerability management across the department of defense. And I was really excited because as a guy who at the time was also still in uniform, so again, it was a reserve gig. I think I left Verizon to go to Tenable. So when you and I parted ways a little bit, um, and it was a couple of years there that I came to this epiphany. And the epiphany was, I used to, I used to pull my, my team together and I'd said, hey guys, what's our job? Oh, we sell security software to blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. What is it? We? And, and, I, and I dragged them through this, these series of questions. And I said, look, at guys, at the end of the day, our job is to find people with money and make that money our money. You know, we were a soon to be publicly traded company. It's all about revenue growth. Um, and, and I say that, and some people viscerally react to that to say, oh, you know, companies are just not in the business of making money. And I said, all right, well, say that when the, when the board of directors are meeting, you know, behind closed doors. Now, this is not to say that, that companies don't have good products and services. Of course, they do. This is not to say that companies are not interested in the success of their customers. Of course, they are. Um, but they do it through products and services, good products and services, products and services that the customer, whether it be the commercial world or the Department of Defense, need to execute their mission. But then what people in the government need to recognize is they're publicly traded companies. They can't do that stuff for free. They have to return revenues to their shareholders. They have to show growth over time. That is the game. So when we get into this public-private partnership, I would say we just have to understand what each side of the of the aisle is doing. And I, I had a debate with a guy from Google not too long ago, um, which was saying, look, you know, the, the military, the Department of Defense, when you when you unleash us from what it is that we go do, we go do it, you know, arguably a terrible thing. You know, it's the delivering of lethality on our adversaries. Um, when you unleash a commercial organization into the world, you know, they are there to generate revenue and, and compete with their with their uh, 
uh, their competitors to, to 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 go for market share. So so when I when I coach my friends who are coming out of the military, going to the private sector, I said, look, as long as you acknowledge that, you're going to be fine, because most military people want to go into the private sector and say, I understand mission. I get the warfighter. I mean, well, they were, well, yeah, that is important, particularly if you can interpolate what that company or product or service that you're doing is going to bring back to the government. That's why uh, those commercial companies love you because they don't speak warfighter. But don't be confused what the what the end state of that company is at the end of the day. And I know people will probably get upset when I say it, but hey, it's about returning a profit um, to that organization, and that's that's kind of what makes the world go down. So, so, yeah, I mean, it's 100%. So what about, you know, folks that are, say, coming out of Cyber Command that are looking for that private sector job? You know, what's the, how, you know, what, how are you advising folks around their transferable skills and all those types of things? Well, well it's funny. Well, a lot of those transferable skills right now, one of the, one of the functions of the PCA is, to, is workforce, right? So many of those transferable skills I am desperate to retain. Uh, because it is a skill that very, very easily translates into the commercial sector and, and very, very valuable in the commercial sector, really, really hard to constitute within the Department of Defense, Department of the Navy. So first and foremost, I'm trying to retain that individual. Um, but at the, same, at the same note, as a guy who's been on both sides of the aisle, I, you know, I, I can't in any good conscience say that you know, uh, moving into the commercial world is at all a bad, a bad thing. You know, it's a wonderful thing. Um, particularly when you bring, you know, the discipline of the military, the, 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 the mission mindset, um, you know, achieving goals of objectives, uh, you know, I think that's why the commercial companies love getting, you know, people who come from the military because they come with all those other qualities imbued into them, a hard work ethic, mission, uh, achieving your end states, delivering on your goals. Uh, those are hugely important. Now, what I would hope is in the future, and I, I use aviation as an analogy here, you know. For those people that want to fly airplanes, you know, there's only one place in the world you're going to fly a joint strike fighter or an F-18 or an F-16. You know, when the government continues to create these capabilities, I think we're going to figure, you know, the recruitment from the private sector into the public sector uh, hopefully will go up because there'll only be one place in the world where you can work with these kinds of technologies. Cyber is a tough one, right? Because at the end of the day, those technologies exist equally. Now you can make some arguments for the intelligence community. We'll leave that one, you know, uh, alone for a minute. But the tech, the ones and zeros, kind of exists equally everywhere. Which it's so it's harder to make that argument. Um, I don't know. Did I ramble too much or did that answer your question? No, it's perfect. And I think you know you start to hit on something really important, which is when you start to think about the the mission and 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 this is where public private partnerships and information sharing really hits, hits home is a lot of times the government will say well because the private sector you have better information than we do because it's on your infrastructure is where the you know Department of Defense can only see what's on the, the military networks right <laughs> Department of Defense networks yep. so you know this conversation around the private sector sees more which means it becomes harder for someone in the government to say well why wouldn't i want to go to the private sector where there's just as much you know information technology and compensation and i can still be a part of the mission and maybe have different part you know different perspective yeah i i you know jen easterly hit on this just recently and i wish her all the success in the world with the with this new organization or this new collaborative environment she's creating um uh, you and I at our time in Verizon, you know, we were, I, I was kicking around this idea of the calling, you know, you know the telecoms, the eighth cyber center. Because at the time, there were these seven cyber centers, you know, the NTOC, NC3, uh, 
you know, these, these, these traditional DOD organizations that were tasked with doing these, these, these kind of missions, but they didn't see everything that the telecoms saw. Uh, the telecoms had, had, you know, talk about access to information, you know, and, and if the telecoms only went down this path, I called them like the weather channel. You know, the telecoms could be the weather channel of the internet because they see everything. They see, they see it all over the world and they could, they could uh, anonymize it to such a way that it's like, here, we're, hey, there's a huge DDoS in Europe going on, as an example. Call it a weather pattern that's, ex- that's experiencing over there. Um, that's where I think a lot of where this public-private partnership comes down in. And I think Jen's, t- you know, she's scratching at this right now. And I think that's if she continues to go down this path. You know more power to her because that's exactly what needs to exist right now. Now you're getting into the point where where there's even an easier transition for people going from from public to private and private to public when an organization like that exists specifically to share information and they need people that speak all of those different languages to be in a room together. Not only technical language, I mean those commercial languages, particularly you know the interests of what the government wants to do and the interests of what the yeah. commercial industry wants to go do. And those guys can now talk together. That's that's hugely important. Yeah, extremely valuable stuff. I think she's going to do great. So, Chris, look, I really appreciate you being back in the government, contributing and serving, help keep us all safe. And, um, you know, just as importantly, I appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, pleasure's all mine, Andy. Thank you so much. Yeah, brother. I will catch up soon. All right, folks, it's time for us to bounce about out of here. Before I go, I remind our listeners to go to the Cybersecurity Hub to get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 